Welcome to Saltivation. The Saltivation Show is a podcast series featuring the leading voices in salt, where we talk about the issues and strategies to help you make sense of state and local tax. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Saltivation Podcast. Today, we are joined by Scott Peterson, who has more than 25 years of what some would consider getting the inside scoop. I don't want to take it too much of a thunder, but Scott has spent time within a Department of Revenue and Industry Group, for lack of a better term, kind of intended to maintain mystique, and a sales tech software company. Scott, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. We are very lucky to have you. And of course, Judy Vorndren of Tax Ops Saltivation. Hello, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll just dive right in. Um, Scott, your background is a little different than some of our prior guests who have spent a lot of time within private practice. What has your career path been and what made you stay away from kind of that private practice? Uh, My career path is an accident. And I, it's well, you know, I, I had no, I I went to graduate school to be a city manager. And so I learned nothing about tax in college and I went, so I, but I get out of graduate school in the middle of a, just a nasty recession. And of course, the first thing that happens in a recession is government stops spending money because governments have no taxes. And so I, I, I was unemployed, you know, eight months. And the, and I, which is a horrible thing, by the way, I feel bad for all those people who have lost their job in this recession because it's a bad thing. So I'm sitting there unemployed and, you know, trying to pick up little gig jobs where I can. And my faculty advisor calls and says, uh, Scott, the website, you're just looking for uh, a new analyst and, um, you know, you should apply. So I go and I interview and I, you know, put on the, the best cheap suit that I own, which uh, I was in graduate school. Um, and the, um, and the, frankly, that company that I bought that suit from all those years ago, they just went bankrupt this year <gasps> because of this stupid recession. Oh. Uh, so the, uh, I go and I have an interview and I'm thinking, okay, that's fine. And lo and behold, they hire me. Uh, I show up for work the first day and with two other people, they'd hired three people. And he calls a big staff meeting in and introduces all of the existing staff to us, new staff. And he, then he turns and he uh, looks at his existing staff and uh, it, they were all subject matter experts. So the, the, the organization, the, the legislature's professional staff was divided by subjects. He looked at him and says, you know, you've all been doing what you're doing for a while. You want to change? You want to change your specialties? And they all said, nope, we're happy. And they turns around to me and says, you're the tax guy. No. <laughs> I couldn't spell tax. Had no idea what the hell I was getting myself into. Isn't that funny? Although I have a master's of tax, so I was intentional my second go around. But that is, and but I am in state and local is definitely like not an intention. And I think it's really interesting that you, that's the case for you because why don't we know about this when these taxes have existed since 1922? Yeah. You know, and especially, did you start in South Dakota? Because, yes. right, you have a very broad-based sales tax. And I feel like even practitioners don't understand that, um, that do income tax compliance. They don't understand the broad-based sales tax in sales in South Dakota. And I don't know, it's just an interesting structure. But isn't that funny that you end up being the default? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I'm, here. I'm here by default. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's why I don't talk about this is because that doesn't look good in a resume. Yes. <laughs> 
Well, you've, got, you've got some stuff since then that kind of supports <laughs> that. And you know, you spent what a, almost eleven years in at the Department of Revenue. Yeah. No, so I went. So I spent ten years, twelve years with the legislature. Oh, okay. And I, and I was so I was their tax guy. And, and honestly, I I I um you know it's, it's a part time legislature. So there's you know there's three or four months in a year where they're not around, and you have time to do things. And so I got pretty good at under trying to research and try to understand what other states' taxes looked like. Oh, okay. so we didn't have an income tax, so I had no idea what personal income right. tax. I, you know, well, to this yeah. day, I have never lived in a state that had, a, other than when I was in the army, and which didn't count, when right. or that had income tax. So I, my 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 understanding of personal income taxes is the federal tax. Yeah. And it's interesting in the area of tax, in my profession, starting out in the big four public accounting or big eight or whatever it was, it was income tax that was a driver and a byproduct would be state income tax, big deal. But sales tax was just an afterthought. And I remember thinking there is so much money going out the door. Why is this so devalued? I realize it's on your customer, but if it's wrong, it's on you. But there's just there was just this weird thinking in business, the CFOs, the controllers, and our system of education, where sales tax has just been widely dispersed to the back end, you know, clerical, but very, very important and very monumentally costly not to do a good job with it. So that's what you did by comparison was to understand those differences to help the legislature kind of make decisions as the tax policy. Interesting, because, you know, I used to work for a firm that had a very large office in South Dakota. So I've been to South Dakota a lot. I actually went to Pierre and uh, argued a case with the Department of Revenue. Got to fly in on like a no bathroom airplane to the one gate airport. (laughs) That no bathroom airport or that no bathroom plane between Pierre and Denver is... uh, Right? In the winter. Oh Oh my gosh, it was so scary. But anyway, beautiful little town. I didn't realize the fishing and the hiking and the boating and all the things that it had to offer. Really neat community. But, um, you know, just it was very interesting how they tax so many things like massages and our services as CPAs and attorneys. I'm like, who'd have thunk that they would have such a broad-based sales tax in South Dakota? Yeah, so, I mean, (laughs) yeah, it's a very odd history because they used to have an income tax. Prior to World War II, they had a... Okay. So when, <laughs> they, when, they, when they adopted their sales tax in 1932, it came with a personal and a corporate income tax. And oh they had goodness. that until about 1944, 1946, somewhere, when they repealed the personal income tax and repealed the corporate income tax, except for the tax on banks. That's the only yeah, tax that the they banking kept. thing is then interesting. They kept the sales tax. Why do you think I know, that was I think, a shift? Uh, honestly, I uh, there isn't much history that that you can look up to find the reasons behind it. You know, they just they said we weren't going to have it. And in the forties of all times, because that's when income tax really took off across our yeah. nation at yep. the state level was after World War II. That's very interesting. I did not realize that bit of history. Yeah, I mean, so even you know, in, in those days, it was a it almost wholly agricultural state. Sure. Right. Yeah, there, there wasn't much for industry at all. And tourism, you know, Mount Rushmore had just been completed, but you know, we, we hadn't, we didn't have the interstate highway system. And so if you were going to be a tourist in the 1940s, you had to have some, you know, some wherewithal. You're going to, you're going to Yellowstone. You're that's going to Yellowstone. That's the kind of hardy person you are. So that's why you would go to South Dakota. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's different now, but uh, in those days. 
Well, yeah, because they're getting the big biking conference. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah. They're getting yeah, lots of, lots of good people. press these days. It was a client of mine. I did some work for them. I didn't realize like what a big deal that um, brand is for that um, biker conference, which is called, I can't think of the name now. Sturgis Rally. Sturgis. There yeah, you go. The Sturgis, Sturgis name. It's a big deal. It's a big oh, money yeah. maker there. Yeah. So after 12 years, the legislature, you know, they, uh, they get a new governor and he, he fires the entire senior leadership of the Department of Revenue. Everybody. And so there were vacancies all over. Um, and um, I had I'd always thought, you know, when I was working for the legislature, there's, there's two jobs that I wanted. If I couldn't do what I was doing, there's two other things. I wanted to be director of sales tax, or I wanted to be the executive director of Custer State Park. <laughs> you because know, you got to live in the park. You got a house inside the park. Yeah. And I yeah. just love Custer State Park. And I thought, well, there's no way in hell they're ever going to let me, you know, I, what, what do I know about running a park? I know nothing about running a park. I knew a lot about taxes, but I never expected to get that job because the guy that had the job did a great job. Our, the guy then, who was in charge of the taxes? Yeah. Until the governor came in and fired him. So, wow. So they called me, asked me to do that. So I took it. Um, and uh, one of the very first things that I was involved with was the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally because they have a big office, you know, because the Department of Revenue takes about 10 people from around the state and moves them to Sturgis for, in those days, it was just 10 days. Now it's three weeks. Um, and they set up an office and they issue licenses and they collect taxes, which uh, this would have been 1990, 1995. They didn't take checks. All the taxes, it's like, it's like marijuana in Colorado. All the taxes are paid by cash. Wow. And so we had armed guards. I was going to say, did you just have like armored trucks? Oh, and like, geez, you're just, just sitting on these mounds of cash. Just with, sitting, you know. There was a, a guy um, who sold leather, you know, leather jackets. And, it, and he was really successful. And he, they made this guy pay the date, the first um, pay, big payment day. He showed up with $140,000 in cash. Wow. I mean, this is how big, this guy sold a lot. That's 8% or whatever percent. Yes. Of, you know, that's, you back into that, that's a, that's a serious money. Yeah. That's and like I said, a million. Well, wait a minute. That's a lot. Yeah, that's like a million dollars. That's, a lot of money. that's guy, like over shows, a million dollars of jackets. I mean, he shows up with a black, gar with a black garbage bag full of cash. And I go, oh, wow. And, and I said, how long has this guy been selling there? Oh, he's been here for 25 years. I said, 25 years? You don't trust this guy? I said, next year, we're going to take checks. <laughs> so my, my first big executive decision running the sales tax division was to, to switch from, <laughs> from cash only to taking checks for the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally. <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking, you guys got to be kidding me. You've known this guy for crazy. 25 years and you don't trust him. Yeah. Well, it's a policy. It's an inefficient po bureaucratic policy, right? Yep. We can't bend the rule for you because we got to oh, create yeah. a general rule. Oh, yeah. Where do you draw the line? You know, that's, yep. so this is an issue with running a, a, a tax agency is you come to love the law because the law is the thing that you can say, this is, I didn't create this law, sir. Yes. I'm sorry. This treats you the way it does, but I didn't create this law. Correct. But I'm, I have no choice but to enforce this law. So what it, it becomes a crutch in many ways. Yes, it is. Yes. 
And it, it gives you in flexibility. And that is one failing of government, in my humble opinion, is you need to give people the latitude to deal with case-by-case situations, yet you don't want them to be rogue as a governmental agency, right? So it's like, like can you trust them to enforce the laws properly without giving them a rule and a standard to live by? But that if you look at a human-to-human interaction, what a benefit it would be if we could look at it a little bit more that way to trust this vendor, you know, who clearly is trustworthy that he doesn't need to bring cash. It's ridiculous. Yep. Yeah. No, I, yeah, it's, uh, I agree. You know, we've, you know, all those, so I was there for 10 years and, you know, for that whole period, I'm starting to thinking, okay, how can you, how can you hire folks that you're never going to have to worry about? You know, you, you, yeah. trust, you trust, so, and as you know, you've hired a lot of people, you know, judgment is a, painful thing to discern yeah. in an interview question. How do you know this person's judgment is going to be the, what you're looking for? Because, you know, in, in state and local tax, it's hard to find someone who knows state and local tax. Yes. So you assume, we, and we, we had a rule. I mean, we, we want someone who understands business. In, in an ideal world, they're going to understand business. They, yes. They've been a retailer at some point in time or worked for a retailer. Yeah. But and who could write? But and we yeah, thought a lot of CPAs learn. can't write. I mean, well, that's and, an interesting and we, issue. We learned that I mean, CPAs are no different than anybody else. Yep. Um, but people don't like to write in general. I agree. People don't you like know, to write. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny. I noticed as I had to build my own group at my former firm. And then now I really look for people who choose a profession. Like for example, CPA, master's of tax, LLM, or lawyer, CPA lawyer, not just a lawyer, no offense to lawyers. I'm a lawyer, but with a business undergrad, because you have to have that mindset. A lot of lawyers are poli sci or right. English and they don't understand numbers. I mean, my husband's a real lawyer. He's a litigator and he does not understand financial statements. And I give it, he has a degree of philosophy. I give him so much crap for that, but you know, he's smart and he's thoughtful and he's a good litigator, but he doesn't understand books and records, you know? And if you don't have the financial acumen, it's really hard to understand sales tax because you have to understand the policy and then you have to put the numbers on the forms because that's bureaucratic. But if you don't understand like what's going on with the business, you can't really apply the law to the facts and then put it on the form. So it's yeah, really interesting no. when you look at that, those attributes in hiring somebody, that's very interesting. I think the same way. That's interesting because you had to hire those people yep. and they're not just like coming out of the shelves. They're not. Like, oh, there's just a ton of people out of, you know, a, C, a CPA who's going to do sales tax. No. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's hard to find a, a CPA uh, bachelor's degree that includes any state tax. Oh yeah. It's ridiculous. Our system does not educate us in what is something that impacts you and me every single day. Every day we pay sales tax. If we go to the grocery store, we buy gas, That's right. you know, I mean, we pay property taxes on our homes. I mean, why is it such a a thing that's not thought about? It's a very interesting issue. And of course you work with very policies across the country, right? So that's like, why are we doing it this way versus them doing it that way? Oh yeah. State income tax is very, very little from state to state, but sales taxes vary a lot. Yes. Yes. Well, and there's the nuances too, that like one word can make the biggest difference in, you know, a taxability or an interpretation or, you know, a position, you know, even the same words can mean different things, you know? (sighs) Yeah. It's we're, we're currently supporting one of our clients in an audit who has been previously audited we litigated the results of that audit 
And now like literally took it to court. got a judge finding of what the business is. Yes. And now the department is now saying no. Because it was like, you're, you're not subject to sales tax. This is a use tax on you. And now they're saying, oh no, it's subject to sales tax. And we're like, we literally, <laughs> literally <laughs> litigated this in your jurisdiction that the ruling came out 15 months ago. Like, what do you mean? Yeah. And you get to start over and like have a refresh. The business hasn't changed. It's very disheartening actually, because taking it to court was expensive for the client. And it, what I thought was the value of all that was to get assurance, right? To get a finding. And now that's being thrown aside. And I don't know how to deal with that administratively still. I don't know that it's going to be material to the client. So it may not be an issue to take forward, but it's frustrating as a practitioner when you're trying to help people, you know? Well, you, you use a very important word in our business, material. Yep. There's an awful lot of really bad tax decisions because it just isn't material. Correct. Yep. Yeah. No, it's always extortive. I, I feel like if it's 50000 or less of an assessment, you're going to pay it because you can't litigate it for that. It's got to be millions of dollars or half a million and a continuing practice in order to say, let's go to court because you're three years out before you're going to get a decision. So it's, it's just not worth it. You're going to live in uncertainty for too long a period of time and you can't work a business like that. So, no. Yeah. Yeah. You, especially if you're public, you can't have this, this, you know, this potential liability out there. It affects this giant accrual that's like, that gets picked at every quarter or annually oh, yeah. in your financial statements. It's like, what is this accrual? It's like, I want that to go away. Well, and it's funny in lieu of Wayfair, how we got South Dakota to take that case forward. I mean, that's, that was monumental. And it was very gracious of what oh. Overstock, New Egg and um, Overstock, New Egg, and, and Wayfair, Wayfair, and Wayfair <laughs> to, yeah. to be willing to pay the money to resolve an issue that really, quite honestly, didn't benefit them at all in an immaterial state in the spectrum of life. Oh, and God. yet they all took this case all the way up to the Supreme Court, which is a blessing to the land, I think, because at least it created some universal truths at a Supreme Court level. Yeah. Right. And is there, is there something strategic within South Dakota that that was the state that was chosen to you know, carry that forward? Uh, strategic, uh, th- th- historical, yes. So in, um, w- in the late 1980s, when the Multi-State Tax Commission created the Bell Assess, pro- no, yeah, the, the Bell Assess Project, I mean, they, those states created a, an actual group, uh, gave it a name, and the point of the group was to try to find a way to overturn the Bell Assess decision. And that's how we got the Quill decision. Oh. Uh, there was, there was a, uh, I mean, that was, a, there was nothing accidental about Quill. I mean, it was orchestrated. Right. right. And it, it, it took a lot longer than the states thought it should have taken because they couldn't find the right set of facts. And they couldn't find somebody willing to go to court. Right. Right. That's what I'm saying. With I mean, with those those taxpayers, I, I thank them for doing it. You got to pay a lawyer to take those cases up to court. I mean, that was not cheap to go to the oh, Supreme no, Court. That's right. Yeah. That, that, and like I said, it, it goes to the materiality of things, you know. And that was not material. I'm sorry. Like, you've got a million people in South Dakota at the most, right? I mean, how much tax is that? Not much. In the spectrum of your worldwide presence, no way did that matter to them. So that was not, the lawyers made out on that one. (laughs) So in in around 1990, when they they got to a spot where they thought they had a company, Quill, that would go to court with them, then there was a battle to see who which state would do it. And North Dakota and South Dakota had a very unpleasant exchange in that period of time because 
South Dakota really wanted that case. North Dakota had an income tax. Why did North Dakota need to care about the sales tax? They had an income tax. South Dakota doesn't yeah. have an income tax. You know, they were, in, the, in their minds, they were more um, at risk yeah. from the mm-hmm. Bellicess decision. Right, from a presence perspective and to set a standard. Interesting. Because I, I thought it was always interesting that both those two states had such a large bearing on our sales tax world. And, you know, having worked for a firm that was based in North Dakota with large offices in South Dakota, where they really kind of began, um, I really became ingrained in those states because, you know, when I was at the big four, I cared about the perimeter states, Texas, Illinois, California, because there's a bigger market there. But then to work at a firm that has a lot of clients in those states, I really realized how much business is actually happening there. There's a lot of great businesses in those states, actually. Great really good started manufacturing in North Dakota. businesses there. Yep. Yeah. And oil and gas was really big there. So, I mean, you know, it, it just changes your perspective when you live in a state and you realize what that, what is being created there. Um, and Sturgis, right. Very important mm-hmm. things. Yeah. <laughs> Sturgis, very important. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I, you know, the Wayfair decision, I, I, I didn't just honestly, um, many days and I wish they would said more about what the standards should be. I mean, it goes to Meredith's point about how different the words can be. When the di- so we've got gross receipts, we've got gross sales, we've got gross income. Yeah, we've got a, a, you know twenty-five or at least twenty-five states that use the word gross. Yep. Somehow, some way in their sales tax imposition statute, but they don't all use the same. No. I know that was a very interesting issue when we sort of created a Wayfair deliverable because we're like, we got to get in front of this because how are we going to tell people what the answer is and how do we measure it, right? It depends on how the revenue is earned and who it's to. And then interesting how Kansas threw that whole thing to the wayside and said, we're just going to have no standard. You just have to collect. (laughs) Like, are you kidding me? How is this happening? So that's been really interesting to see the enforcement. But then what ultimately happens to my mind to taxpayers is you're kind of damned if you do or damned if you don't. So you might as well do, because why would you, why are you going to litigate the case if you don't collect the tax? Like you're not going to be the one. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, honestly, I don't know how we're ever going to get Kansas in court. <laughs> right. Who's going to pay for that? Who's going to pay for that? Yeah. And I think that must be the risk they're choosing to take. They're like, oh, whatever. And Colorado, the same thing. You know, we implemented a Wayfair statute because we believe that our old law, our nexus enumerating statute, our doing business statute was good enough to continue forward. So policy-wise, they didn't have to go to the legislature. They didn't have to change the rules. They believed they could apply a Wayfair because all they had done is narrow the application administratively due to the Quill case. So what they did is they just took a policy position and said, we'll scale it back because of Quill. Well, now the Quill is, you know, there as well as Wayfair. We're just going for it. So, you know, we have an issue with Tabor in Colorado where you cannot make a law change to increase taxes without a vote of the public. Well, we don't have to do that vote. They had decided it was fine. So there you go is your interpretation Mm -hmm. because a lot of us practitioners like, this is unconstitutional. We can't do this. And they went through all the history and they're like, somebody can sue us then. So that's how we have a Wayfair in Colorado. Materiality. Yeah. Yeah. And then who's going to sue? Do you know anything? I mean, I remember seeing um, the lawyer for Overstock or Newegg, I think it was. I was at an American Bar Association Institute of Professionals Taxation Conference, and he spoke at our lunch meeting before the Wayfair decision about stare decisis and let things be what they are. And he was really arguing that. And I thought, 
yeah, you're thinking old school, that's not going to win because the world has changed so much where retailers are not site specific. You don't go in the store and buy anything anymore with Amazon and the, and the internet. Everybody's just ordering, right? And we've really changed our culture of how we buy our goods. We like to shop online and compare and contrast. And I don't think the sorry decisis argument obviously didn't fly, but he's making this argument that that's how we should, they should win and not have to collect the taxes. And obviously we know that just went out by the wayside. And I remember thinking, listening to him as he spoke about their position and then the uh, state of Alabama spoke as well. And he was like, da, 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 da. And he's a lawyer too. The guy who works for Alabama. And I don't Joe. know if he's still there. Yes, Joe. Yeah, jo- no, jo- thought, jo- Joe works for the bi- one of the big four now. Oh yeah. So he, he got in. <laughs> Well, that happened with your wife too, right? Smart administrators get hired by the big four. That's what happened in my career. We were trying to figure out how to deal with this remediation with all these clients that were not compliant. To be honest, 20 something years ago, what did we hire? We hired a bunch of people, administered the state government rules, and we created the voluntary disclosure programs. Like that's something that came out in my career where Mm. it's like, call Joe, he'll help you fix it in Alabama. Like you got to go to him and walk down the bucket of money and say, here you go. Will you take my money and forgive my past? So kind of funny to see that history. Yeah. Yes. Well, so then you're at South Dakota and then, you know, kind of Streamline comes along and you were executive (laughs) director of Streamline Sales Tax Governing Board. Yes. So then what, you know, what led you there? And then really what, what does Streamline mean to, you know, and everyone and anyone. So it, the, the, those years that I worked for the legislature, every day I was helping somebody try to change something. I mean, it's, it, you don't need to introduce a law to keep the status quo. You know, and so I was, you know, I wrote, you know, I probably wrote 3,000 3, different pieces of legislation, you know, in, in the years that I worked there. Every one of them was about change. So I spent all those years changing helping people change, planning on change, giving people advice on how to change something. I want to do this. They'd come to me and say, I want to do, I want our tax system to be different. So I give them advice on how to change. So I get to the Department of Revenue, which is a non-change organization. And, you know, so I'm doing my, you know, I'm doing my best to, you know, to be, you know, to follow the law and um, Streamline comes along and Streamline's all about change. You know, so I, for me, this was, like going home. Oh, we're going to talk about how to do things differently than we do them now. Yahoo. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, you know, I, I, for me, it was a, it was a return to normal, which was change. And, 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 and but with a, uh, a really good marketing, because we were going to change for the sake of change. We were going to, we were, we were making changes to make life better. Yeah. So uh, to me, this, this streamline was a, a wonderful experience. Um, you know, got to meet all these people, but we actually got to talk about looking at everything that everybody did and said, okay, who does it the best? And if no one did it the best, we create a best. And then we would say to governors and legislators, this is good for you and the people in your side, your state. So you should do this. Um, so I, you know, I, for me, uh, uh, you know, immediately started in the leadership because it was, you know, there was, you know, there was something to do. Um, and, and I wanted, I wanted the change to be successful. So I was constantly trying to get into roles that, you know, give, 
allowed me to have a voice in the direction of the organization. And then, you know, after you know, a number of years of doing that, um, you know, doing, uh, we got to a spot in there where I was doing two, two jobs and neither of them very well. When it got to a spot where they felt they needed to hire staff, you know, they, they approached me and said, you know, would you be willing to do this on a full-time basis? And, you know, I'd spent, by then I'd spent 10 years at the Department of Revenue and that's, you know, that's a long time. Um, and, you know, those, those folks needed new leadership. And so to me, it was a, a natural evolution, you know, going from being a, a tax policy researcher to a tax policy administer, administrator to a, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even sure what the streamlined role is. You know, that executive director's role was, it wasn't tax policy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was more, it wasn't tax administration. Although regulating the, the certified service providers was a, you know, was a, a bit regulatory. Um, but it was more of a, um, you know, like a 30,000 foot view of both tax administration from the retailer side and from, you know, from a, a state side. It's kind of marketing and selling and getting buy-in, right, to to glom in, to adopt, right? And yet we're at 24 states and not all 46 or 45 plus D.C. What do you think that is the reason we haven't gotten more states on board? I mean, I guess I can think like Colorado because we've got home rules, but you got California, New York, Texas. We don't, they're not in streamline. I mean, they just, are they arrogant? You know, so I, I'm glad you used the word marketing uh, because <laughs> marketing was a big part of my job. Oh, I and can't I, imagine. I was giving yeah. presentations all the time. I traveled, speaking mm-hmm. to, you know, I spoke to legislative committees in Texas and California and Idaho and Florida, Missouri, you know, trying to get those, uh, New York, uh, trying to get those non-SST states to state legislators to understand the things that were part of Streamline to actually help the businesses inside their states correct yes you know because you know obviously your, your marketing has to be you got who you have to understand your buyer yeah and then you have to tell your buyer something that the buyer wants to buy and for, for legislators is this is good for the businesses inside your state yes the challenge you know and this is one of the things you know and we we talked about this throughout the whole sst time were we doing too much were we doing too little and so there were and, and and the way SST started, it you know it's it because <laughs> because the state tax administrators had no idea what made their sales tax complicated. They right so yes. you ha- had no idea, um, and the only people who did were the business, the multi-state businesses. Mm-hmm. Yes. So we surveyed all of them. You know, the, the Council on State Taxation did a great job of providing support. You know, they got all their members to give, uh, to, to give it, you know, you know, the top 10 things that make them crazy about state sales tax, you know, and that's where all the things that are in the streamlined sales tax agreement today come from that survey of businesses back in 2000. Well, the, the, the challenge was how do you exclude anything? If you can say businesses, tell us what your worst problem is and we'll fix it. Well, that's a, you know, that's a recipe for a big list. Um, and, and the challenge was, how do you say no? And have you said yes too often? Because there were things that they, that we did that we thought made perfectly rational sense at the time. And one of them is why Colorado, Texas, and and California aren't members. 
And that's because the state and local tax base have to be identical. Yeah, and really Texas, interesting. Texas doesn't tax utilities. Texas cities tax utilities. So, it, yeah. so th then our favorite word came back in. It's a material change to the Texas tax yeah. policy for either the Texas to start taxing utilities. Imagine how, how much tax that would generate or oh for gosh. those cities to stop taxing utilities. Right. Mm -hmm. And since that was a deal that was part of the package, you know, the, the Texas legislator said, there's no way in heck we could ever do this because we can't have that big of a tax increase or that big of a tax reduction. It just, Interesting. we don't have the money to make up the money for the locals. And we, 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 God forbid, can't spend the money that would come from taxing utilities. So, and California was like that to a, a, a lesser degree. Their, 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 their issue was, was narrower. And obviously Colorado's, you know, the tax base difference between um, the state and the cities is immense in between, frankly, in between cities, it's immense. You know, that's funny you say that though. I mean, it really actually is very interesting to me because I, obviously I understand that in Colorado, but I didn't realize that was the issue in Texas because you do have a state collected tax, but you're right, the disparity between the 1,713 1, jurisdictions at this local level, even though state collected, they're not collecting on the same base. And you obviously have something similar in California because of the local, even though state collected, there is some disparity. And we have that in Colorado now where we're trying to do this sales and use tax system where there's a common place of registration and remittance for the home rules and the state, but there is not parity amongst what is nope. taxes due on what. Now we did get buy-in for the cities to come on board if they want, you know, they can choose to do this. And so we've actually got a fair amount of momentum. And I think COVID's going to really help that, to be honest, because you're not going to get that money because you've got a lot of in-state, in-city vendors that are shutting their doors not giving the money they need. So we're, we're going to see a change and COVID's probably going to help the state and local from our perspective in Colorado. But once again, it came down to bonds. There's a lot of money tied up in bonding oh, yeah. city projects. And if you change the base, there's no bond. So we can't, we can't change the base, which has just become this complexity, complex rules because all the darn locals in America. Yeah, city bonding has is, is always been a, a challenge. Um, I mean, even in South Dakota, where you know the tax base has always been the same. Whenever the legislature wanted to exempt something, yeah, the first thing the municipal league would say is, you know, you know, Sioux Falls just issued a bond uh, for the next fifteen years, dependent upon X amount of expecting right. X amount of sales tax. Yeah, just reduced it by Y. How you gonna make up the difference? Yeah, we give all this authority these local jurisdictions. We actually have a client that helps rural water districts. Do you know there are over 30,000 rural water districts in America? Like, I didn't know there was that much water in America. Like, I know there's water, but I didn't realize there are that many places where people get their water. So, um, you know, there's just so many smaller jurisdictional issues in America that serve our taxpayers or our humans to give them goods and services or things to live in, recycling, water. But I mean, I don't think people realize like how that's evolved. It, it's not a national strategy, right? Um, so there's, there's, <laughs> some days I wonder if it's even a state strategy. It's right. Just, it's just, okay. Okay. Yes. No, no, it's very siloed. I feel like we've become very siloed in America, um, which is unfortunate, not in my backyard or, you know, we have that with oil and gas and drilling and drinking, you know, rigging and fracking. And we have huge issues with that in Colorado specifically. Like I'm not going to do that. Or oh, pot is a perfect example. Like which cities adopted pot in Colorado versus which cities did not. Um, and then when they saw the money, they started adopting it. <laughs> 
yeah, that's our state. Don't get too uh, oh, no. fired up about that. No, no, it's, <laughs> it's it's North. So it, it, what what what's makes Colorado normal is it's just different and different. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's different is what's normal. I mean, we're. <laughs> I mean, look at the, the three of us. We couldn't be more different. Yeah, and yet it, we're normal. It is normal that we're different. To be different, yeah, it is, yeah. yeah. And then I'll use that to transition. So, you know, you kind of have government, quasi-government-ish, and now you're at a software company. So how now you are currently vice president of U.S. tax policy and government relations at Avalara. So, you know, you know, Avalara has an incredible, has had an incredible amount of growth. They've gone public. They're a marketing machine. And, you know, Nine out of 10 times when we talk to someone, they're like, oh, yeah, we know of that company. Nine out of 10 people can't say it correctly. <laughs> um, but, you know, now you're there. Where, you know, how'd that come about? And what are you doing there? You know, because of, of all the things that we did in Streamline that the business community was proud of, the certified service provider was the least of them. You know, the big companies that were, you know, that were promoting SSD and, and promoting all this uniformity and simplicity that came from SSD didn't care at all about no. certified service providers. You know, they did, they had their own thing. They, they had, had a group. They had to thing. do it. Absolutely. Yeah. They you don't know, need I, it. They I'm, don't need I'm it. not going to turn, you know, I've got 75 different billing systems in my company. Right. There's no way I can give this to one company. You know, the whole concept of, of a certified service provider just kind of, it, it, it didn't languish per se, but it just never took off. Right. Um, but the one thing that I knew from, you know, and hoped and, and I think and, and, and learned as, as, as I was um, executive director at SST was that if you're willing to put enough money into tax content and exemption certificate management, and automation that you could build a sales tax system that was perfect and we were never going to get to perfect in SST otherwise there were just we were never going to get all the states we were never going because to get to all the states you'd have everybody would have to be perfect and I and, I, and so I'm sitting there and you know in the last last year I had that job thinking well you know this thing we're never we're never going to get to the what I thought we should get to in the beginning, which was a zero burden sales tax system. You know, SST SST's original name was zero burden sales tax system. Wow! And for a very short period of time, an embarrassing an embarrassing long period of time, but a, really a very short period of time, we honestly thought we could get to a zero burden. What's well, good? You got to have. Uh, you got to have altruistic motives, in my yeah. opinion, or you're yeah. not motivated. Uh, and and, and, and th thank you. You're absolutely right. Well, I think the certified service program, part of that thing, is as close to what the states could get to practically to zero burden. And they get there, you know, by eliminating the risk of audit, you know, and, 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 and providing the content and paying for it. Yeah, um, there, there was there was a number of times in 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 that SST period when states would say, you know, if this CSP program works and we pay for it, and we have effectively eliminated the burden, we're going to go to the Supreme Court and we're going to get the Quill decision overturned because we truly have eliminated the burden. 
Um, so, but in that last year that I was with SST, I thought to myself, they're just never going to get to that spot. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, when Avalara called, I thought, you guys are much more likely to get to perfect than the states will ever get to. And it's, and, uh, and it's way exceeded my expectations because it's, it's truly amazing how if you put enough effort into it, I mean, you know, we've got tax content for the United States for everything that's sold in the United States. Everything is taxed in this, well, everything right. is taxed differently in the United States. Right. You know, um, and once you get that, you deal with, you've dealt with the sales tax and then you, you broaden your tax content to the other things that people sell that aren't subject to sales tax or that are subject to sales tax, but are subject to other taxes. So you got to yep. deal with alcohol and you have to deal with the beverages. You have to deal with, the, you know, prepared food. You have to deal with tire fees and battery fees and, you know, and, and, you know, recycling fees, all those different things that a normal retailer has to deal with yep. that most people don't even ever think of as a sales tax. Right. But if you're going to be, if you're in the tax compliance business from a retailer's perspective, it's all part of the thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember having a, a long conversation with, uh, a, you know, the tax director from, you know, in an immense big box company. And, and he said, I've got sales tax down. What I don't have automated is the egg tax. <laughs> I had no idea, but there's, there's like 18 states that have yeah. a tax on eggs. And it's, you're, if you're a retailer selling, buying at wholesale and selling at retail eggs, you've got this tax that you've got to pay to those states. And there's no automation for that. So you've got to have somebody on your staff who understands eggs you know, and, and then and who understands the forms and they're always paper forms. Yep. And you have to be licensed with the Department of Agriculture in those states. So, uh, and I, I thought, okay, well, that's the strangest darn thing I've ever heard of. But when Avalara called, uh, I thought to myself, okay, th these people understand what it takes to eliminate the burden. And I, I it's, they, they, they have so far so greatly exceeded my expectations you know we're, uh, there there is practically nothing that we see a government imposing on a business that we're not ready to try to tackle right it's no you've really shifted the game i mean in my i've been with you working with you about 10 years and you know my what my other the, the other vendors they they couldn't connect to quickbooks or netsuite or i mean they they just couldn't so you, people who are a 5 10 million dollar business maybe even 30 they're not going to spend a half a million dollars quarter million dollars to integrate a system to collect sales tax they're just going to do the rates manually right and that's prohibitive. And so Avalara changed that game and they upped it, I think, for the other vendors. And everybody's coming up in that, but Avalara was first to market. And they really upset the apple cart because the money was in the larger conglomerates, the Fortune 500. That's where we, you know, the focus was. But then there are a ton of small businesses in America and a foreign doing business in America that need to collect tax. And Avalara can help with that. And so that's when I started saying, okay, I tell my clients they have a problem how do I give them a solution? I'm not going to give them all the rates and file the returns. I don't have the capacity or the bandwidth or it's the cost structure doesn't make sense for them. I'm not going to make money on it. And it's, and it's not the best and highest use of our time, but automation will help 
alleviate that. And that's how I started partnering with Avalara so that I could help integrate that product so my clients could get rates and rules, you know? You know, because it, it, it's, it seems illogical, but when you had a company that was founded by software people and not tax people, they didn't think about, all they understood about taxes was, in most cases, it's a yes or a no. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, it's easy to put a computer in most cases. So it's easy to automate the yes or the no, if you, you have all the stuff behind it. Yeah. What's complicated and, and you know, the founders knew this from the very beginning, what, because they had been in the software business. The complicated part is selling it because you have to be sold with something else. Yeah. So you, there, there's, there's a billing system somewhere. There's right. an accounting system. There's, you know, there's an electronic cash register. That is how, you know, whatever you're selling from a you know, sales tax perspective, or frankly, any kind of a, a transaction tax perspective has to be attached to the transaction. Right. And there's right. somebody else who's made that software. Yes. And that connector focus was really, uh, I mean, first of all, I had no idea there were over 3,500 sort of billing, invoicing, financial. I mean, I, I, I've i learned more, you know, because in my day at the big four, I was like SAP, Oracle, PeopleSoft, JD Edwards. Those were the brands that I knew. I didn't know Net, I didn't even know NetSuite because I know that's a, that was a creative, but then it bought by Oracle, I believe. But regardless, I mean, QuickBooks, like not, my clients have used QuickBooks. I mean, not that it's not a good product, honestly, but it's not going to be a Fortune 500 or a large company GL system. So, but there are plenty of people that can use QuickBooks very effectively and still get their invoices out and to anywhere they want and they need to put tax on it. So yeah, that was, that's a very interesting. And, but also I think the bigger problem with marketing as I experienced it with your team over the years is the uneducated buyer, right? They just, they're not, people don't, even a controller who's in charge of finance does not understand tax. You know, and in my world, the public accounting, you have the audit group and the tax group. And the tax group didn't understand sales tax, right? It understood income tax. The accounting group asked you about, you know, provision issues, but they didn't understand taxes. They didn't want to. So we have a real problem in our society educationally for people like you falling into it. The last thing you could have possibly thought to do, which actually, obviously, I assume proved very interesting to you. But people don't want to do it, you know, so then you don't have the education and you guys have done a really great job of the white papers and the seminars to teach people about the issues they need to be thinking about, the issue spotting, which I think is a failure of our accounting degree program, quite honestly, and maybe even our CPA societies to educate. And at a law school, I have a master's of tax. I didn't take one single state and local class, not one. one. You took and one, she had one. I took one in my master's of tax yep. program. Yeah. One, you know, well, and our whole career is based on this. I mean, so we have the same issue today in Avalara that, that I did when I worked in the Department of Revenue. I'm looking for somebody that's got a good background, a good education, that I think can learn tax. Yes. Because I take it for granted they didn't in college. Yeah, you have to. Yeah. You know, but there has to be a desire and an interest and a knowledge and a curiosity. I think those are the attributes I look for and kind of a passion for the puzzle and not a frustration with the puzzle because the, pu <laughs> the puzzle is frustrating. It's very sometimes frustrating. you can't always get to the answer you want because laws are old, not read, you're ready for new technology or just how process works. So those are the things I think I cha I'm challenged with with my clients, but also trying to make it fun for them, which I think Avalara does a really great job. I mean, the tiki huts and the, you know, they just make sales tax people feel good, I think. I in, it, There's no reason why you can't have fun. Yeah. 
There's right. You have to, right? Like, I mean, at the end of the day, we are still doing tax. So like, how can you, you know, my husband makes fun of me all the time. He's like, yeah, 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 whatever. (laughs) Yeah. But you're saying like, boring, but like, but your whole comment about the tax on eggs, like that's kind of interesting. I mean, I remember doing work for a client that sells uh, parts for porta potties. (laughs) Oh, it's oh, a taxable thing. I'm just telling you. Porta potties are a great. If you want to have fun in tax, talk porta potties. Absolutely right. I mean, there's a business of that, and and you know, it's funny as I think about. It, I'm like, we have porta potties, so we can have concerts and runs and go to venues. I mean, shoot, we did the thing on the beach with you guys um, in Huntington Beach, and we have porta potties because there's not enough in that little bathroom to accommodate all the end users. So. Porta potties is a big business, and you got to parts for those. You know, and it's, 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 it's TPP and service. That's right. You know, you've got, you've got, right. a, you've got a bundle transaction. That's right. <laughs> which, which is, which, yeah, which is where you start to lose, lose most people. Right. right. Well, and then you've got, you know, the component of the disposal, and are there like certain, you know, toxic, on that. you know, yes. fees on associated with that recycling. Oh, oh yeah. So and. and so that gets to one of the the challenges in in this business is everybody assumes there's going to make sense. You know, yeah. there has to be a logical explanation. And for most folks who just never had any exposure to what we do, it's the lack of logic that that I think drives them crazy. Right. That was my experience with the you know working for the legislature for all those years. You know, I'd come in and explain why we did something the way we did it. And they said, well, it doesn't make any sense. And I said, it doesn't have to make sense. <laughs> it doesn't have to make sense, but I got to do it. I got to do it. Yeah. So I have one really last important question. Do you like the color orange? I, you know, I do. I've, I'm, um, and have you learned to like the color orange? No, I've always liked, I've always liked the color orange. I think, you know, I, I've got a complexion where orange works relatively well. Um, <laughs> But it's you know a lot. Of, some people don't, and orange looks terrible on me. I will say, I, I'm the, very fair. Yeah. It makes me look orange. <laughs> Not my color. No, that's fine. I, <laughs> I, I, uh, there, there, there's a lot of people in Avalara that wear orange because it's part of the process. Package. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, our CEO Scott, he he knows he keeps track of this, but he's he's worn orange every day for thousands of days. He has some cool stuff though, like orange jackets. I'm like, oh. you're definitely going to pay attention to like the hot couture orange stuff. Cause right. I think he does a great job in like orange tennis shoes. I'm like, okay, yep. that's fun. You know, I like that. It's really fun. I don't like the color though. I will tell you. Well, you know, cause it's, it's, <laughs> but it's, it's, it, you know, you don't have to wear orange from head to toe. You can have an orange belt, you know, Earrings, you know you orange know, tie. We, we, we had our, uh, one of our, we did a, 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 a webinar the other day with, um, a lady that works for us, she had orange nails, fingernails, fingernails. And awesome. they were, they look great, you know? Well, and we have a client who is an Avalara customer who sells orange hair dye. So oh, this is true. Oh, this is true. We can, we can go there too. So, <laughs> so I'm not going there. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm drawing a line right there. I'll, you know, I, I, I haven't bought a pair of orange pants. I've got lots of orange shirts. I've got several yeah, orange, orange ties. God has those. Yeah. I've, I've got orange pocket scarves. You know, I've got I've got quite a bit of orange. I've got an orange watch, but <laughs> I'm not dying my hair. <laughs> 
Well, on that note, Scott, thank you so much for your time today and, you know, giving us practitioners the inside scoop and Judy, as always, this has been another episode of the Cultivation Podcast. I'm Meredith Smith. Until next time. 